All right, good morning. Welcome to Center Church. If we have not met yet, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. We are thrilled that you are worshiping with us this morning. And if you've been around a while, you'll know this about us. But if you're newer here, you need to know this about us. Uh, we make disciples, not converts. All right, as a church, we desire to make disciples, not converts. What that means is we want so many people in uh, Charlottesville and at UVA to hear the message of the gospel from a trusted friend, to believe it and to follow Jesus with their lives. We, we pray for that, we desire that. But we don't want to leave spiritual infants out to dry. All right, we wanna make disciples that are deeply rooted in the message of the gospel and that can grow up to be resilient and fruitful disciples, multiplying and flourishing for the rest of their life. That's our desire. That's the desire I have for my life and my family, and that is our desire for each and every one of you. Right, at Center Church, we want this to be a common experience. I want you, after being here for a couple of years, to kind of look up, Evaluate your time here and just ask the question, when did I become a man of God? Like, how did that happen? We want the current of Center Church to drive you deeper into your discipleship and your walk with Jesus so that wherever God's take you, we pray it's here for a long time with us or all around the world that you would take the message of the gospel with you and follow Jesus faithfully. But I know many of us, we rather than feeling like we're growing in the Lord a lot, oftentimes we feel stagnant in our faith. We're not really clear about the next step or how to learn more about the Bible. And what I'm excited to announce to you today and to launch in our church is uh, something that we've been working on over the past few years. We've been beta testing a discipleship program. We've tried it out in a number of different ways. We've worked out some bugs and kinks and made some tweaks. And we are ready to announce and to invite anyone and everyone who calls Center Church home to participate in Rooted. All right, Rooted is a one-year discipleship program for anyone at Center Church to grow in their faith. It includes becoming part of a Rooted DNA group where you'll study the scriptures and apply it together. It includes a monthly Rooted meeting where you'll read some pre-assigned material, have teaching, and apply that to your life and understand more about the character of God. It includes a spring retreat and a summer mission trip to Puerto Rico, and we're excited as a church to supplement some of that cost so that as many of you as possible can be a part of Rooted. All right, Rooted starts in January 2024, which is a significant amount of time away. I don't even know what's going on on my calendar tomorrow, but I wanted to give you a heads up because DNA Group is a part of being a part of Rooted, so if you decide to do this, if you're following the Lord and praying, this is the right next step, you might have to transition with your DNA Group. I want you to get off work for the mission trips and the retreats, all these different things, but it's gonna be an awesome way for you to put down roots in your walk with the Lord. Our desire as a church is to help you grow deeply as a resilient and multiplying disciple of Jesus Christ. Christ, and this very well could be the next step for you to grow a foundation in your faith. So I wanna invite you to consider it. I wanna invite you to pray about it. I want to invite you to go to centerseville.com slash pathway, referring to our discipleship pathway, to learn more about Rooted, talk with your spouse about it, but it's an incredible opportunity, and we hope that many of you will decide to plug in and join with us in 2024. We'll be talking about it over the next couple of weeks, but we are thrilled and excited and to start this as a church in 2024. So what I wanna do real quick is pray for this, pray for our church in this area, and ask that the Lord would bless that as we are uh, launching this uh, new discipleship program. So pray with me. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us a community of believers to walk through life with, and I pray that our church will be marked, not just by reaching people for Christ, but by also establishing people in the faith. Lord, I pray that many in this room would participate in Rooted. I pray that you would call them to partake in it, and I pray that you would establish them deeply in the faith for a life of resilient and fruitful discipleship. 
Lord, we pray that you would bless our efforts for the sake of your name and your glory. We desire more people singing your praises. We pray that you would bless that and that you would be honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, well, this morning we are going to be in Psalm chapter 19. You can turn there now. And here's the big question that we are gonna look at this morning, all right? How do we know God? All right, how do we know God? How do you know God? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're here with us this morning, it's obviously a a great uh, question to answer. Um, I think if that's you, there's probably one of two reasons you're here, I could imagine. One is you're asking this question. I'm going to a church, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to understand truth, I want to know God. The the other option, not quite as inspiring, is your spouse dragged you here, or a friend, you just caved to their consistent invitations to get them to stop asking. Whatever the reason, we are glad that you are here, and I hope hope this speaks to you as we look at God's word today. If you are a Christian, I think most of us in a room like this will be, um, this is important for you as well, uh, because actually if you look through the New Testament, consistently, uh, Paul is praying for believers in the New Testament that we would know God more. That's his prayer. If you trace it through, it's his most consistent prayer for the churches. So we need this as well. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we know God? Well, the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm chapter 19, is maybe the clearest answer in a succinct one-chapter place in all the Bible that shows us how we know God. Um, whenever a uh, seminary student starts seminary for the first time, uh, the, one of the first classes they'll take is Theology 1. You know, it's usually divided up a couple different places, Theology 1. And the first section of Theology 1, the first section of the first class, is all about the doctrine of Revelation, all, right, all the doctrine of revelation. I'm not talking the revelation of like angels and demons and fires and bulls and dragons and stuff. That's the end of the Bible and that is the end of seminary because you gotta have some background to get into that stuff. But I'm talking about the doctrine of revelation and revelation is just making something unknown known. All right, the first section in a seminary 101 class is the doctrine of revelation. What has God done to make the unknown known? The claim of the Christian faith is that we could never know God unless he made himself known to us. And so the first thing that we'll do in seminary, what we're gonna look at today is this doctrine of revelation. How do we know God? How has he made himself known to us? That's what we're gonna look at. And if you sit in on a lecture, you're really motivated. You go with your seminary student friend to this doctrine of revelation class. You'll see there's two sides of it. There's two kinds of revelation that the Bible talks about and that most theology books will, will teach you about. The first kind is called general revelation. Our general re- revelation. General revelation is what we can learn about God through his world, all right, through his world. General revelation is we can look around the world and we can learn something about God. That's the first part. The second part is special revelation. All right, special revelation is what we learn about God through his word, all right, through his word. What has he written down for us to know him really specifically? And Psalm uh, divides into these two chapters, right? How do we know God through revelation? And that's what we're gonna see in Psalm chapter 19. And this is my prayer. My prayer is that everyone here today, that we would know God more, and that as we know God more, we would respond in worship and joy and faithfulness. So let's jump in. Psalm 19.1 says this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The first thing we learn is that we know God through his world. All right, we know God through his world. 
Creation itself, in this passage, declares, proclaims, pours out speech, and reveals knowledge. Yet, like we see in verse 3, it does this without speaking actual words. So how does that work? Well, what's happening is the glory of the creation points to the glory of its creator. All right, the glory of creation points to the glory of its creator. You tracking with me? Um, a few months ago, Bailey and I got invited over to eat dinner uh, with a family in the church, and it was one of the best meals I've had in a long time. Uh, we ate a great meal. They were so hospitable, gracious to invite us over, feed us. They teamed up like a well-oiled machine to create this awesome and delicious meal. And at the end of the meal, I'll tell you what I didn't do. All right, I did not look at the steak and say, great job. You, you really, this is, this is incredible steak. I also didn't like look at the kimchi and say, oh, you are so delicious, you, you are tasty. No, I looked at my gracious host, the chefs, and I said, your creation is awesome. You do stuff with food that I can never imagine. I can barely make my son craft mac and cheese and you're whipping up this incredible, glorious meal for me to enjoy, right? The delicious nature of the meal points to the creativity and the wisdom of its creator, of the chef, and the incredible creation that we look at around the world points to the glory of the creator in the same way. I mean, just think about uh, how uh, some of the simple things that we assume all throughout life, we cannot get our heads or our minds around with all the technology we have. All right, right now, we have technology to talk to computers like it's a human. I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible stuff. Um, but what we can't do is figure out an app that will tell us the weather this afternoon. All right, I was going out to play golf this week with some friends, and we were worried about the rain. It's like 90% chance of rain all day. We almost canceled the trip. We ignored it by faith and went down there to play, and it was just sunny all day. I'm like, we, we, we understand making computers talk, but we don't understand the weather, right? The creation is incredibly complex. The God that created these cycles and systems of weather must be wise and know so much more than we could ever imagine. We cannot figure it out. We cannot crack it. And if you remember weather and storms and Jesus, he calmed it with a word, right? The glory of God in creation is so clear and teaches us a lot about his character and his glory. So look at these next verses. In them, the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Of all creation, uh, the psalmist slows down and says, so, yeah, it's, it's all declaring God's glory. It's, it's all powerful, declares God's glory, but I wanna stop and just talk about the sun for a second. Right, this is gonna declare God's glory in a unique and specific way, and this makes sense, because as I was doing a little bit of research on the sun and why it's so incredible, I mean, it's some mind-bending stuff that we cannot get our minds around. Like, it's size, it's, it's, gra it's gravity, it's, it's, it's pool in the solar system. It's so much beyond what we can comprehend. Here are just a few mind-blowing facts about the sun that God created. All right, the sun is so big that about one million Earths could, sit, could fit inside of it. I can't even comprehend like the size of the earth, you know, in, in a mental situation. There's a million of them that fit inside the sun. God created that sun. The temperature, all right, the temperature in the core of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, the sun that God created. I start to get sweat on the back of my knees when it's like 85 and humid outside. 27 million degrees Fahrenheit at the center of the sun. To match the energy produced by the sun, you would have to explode 100 billion tons of dynamite every second. And the sun is just one of more than a billion stars in only the Milky Way galaxy that God created. It's not even an especially big star at that. God created the sun with just a word. It is easier for God to create the sun than for you to tie your shoes. 
what a powerful and glorious creator we must have to create a son like that. The glory of God is unspeakable. It is immeasurable. And we will never wrap our heads all the way around it. And that's why one of Paul's prayer is for the church, Ephesians 1.19, is that the church would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's immeasurable. And this is really good news if you're a follower of Jesus. Really good news if you're a follower of Jesus. Because if you caught in that prayer, he says that great power is toward us who believe. It's toward us who believe. God works his power for his people. God's immeasurable power, if you are in Christ, is on your side and it is at your back. The power that spun the sun up into existence is on your side and is at your back. We look around the world today and we see a uh, culture that is consumed and overwhelmed with worry and is just bubbling up and overflowing with anger. Right? We, we look around and we see that all over the place. Twitter, uh, just go there and look around for a little bit. We see that around the world. Uh, maybe that kind of describes someone you're close to, a friend or a spouse, somebody just overwhelmed with worry and, and bubbling over with anger. Or maybe that describes you. Maybe today you would describe yourself as just consumed with worry and bubbling over with anger or one or the other. And what I wanna point you to is I, I think that comes when we try to take our lives into our own hands. Right, when we look at the world around us, the circumstances of the one life that we get to live, and it's not turning out the way that we want it to turn out, we've got two options. We can worry because we're not gonna have the life that we wanted to live, or we can get angry and shout at the people that we think need to make it happen but aren't treating us the way that we should, right? It makes sense that if we don't have God, or if we have a God who is weak and doesn't control events and is not on our side and at our back, that we would be overwhelmed with worry, and we would be overwhelmed with anger. But the reality of the scriptures is that the same God who hung the, uh, the sun in the sky hung on a sinner's cross for you. The reason you don't have to worry and the reason that you don't have to be angry is not because everything's right in the world. It's not because you're gonna get everything you want and everything that you need, but it's because the God who created the cosmos is full of glory and his power is on your side. So when we go to God, when we're disappointed, when we're frustrated, we can go to him and be real with the difficulties that we're facing. We can pray contentious prayers with him with the true state of our heart, but we need to land the, the plane of those prayers by saying, God, you hung on the cross, so I know you've got me. God, you hung the stars in the sky, so I know you've got this situation. I trust you and I love you. Help me walk through it by faith. Right, the incredible, immeasurable power of God is good news for those of us who are followers of Jesus because it is on our side and it is at our back. Creation, the world, tells us some incredible truths about God's character, but it does not tell us everything about God. All right, uh, creation doesn't tell us everything about God. General revelation, this, what the world tells us, uh, paints God in fuzzy, broad strokes, telling us generally of his glory and power. Right? General revelation tells us as much about God as a painting tells us about the personality of the painter. That makes sense? Like if you're an art, I could not do this. You know, I go to art museums, I have no idea what's going on. You could put like a million dollar painting, $10 painting in front of me, I got no idea. But if you study art, you can look at a painting and understand some of the worldview, the thought, the personality of the one who painted the painting. So it gives us a vague a picture of uh, who God is, but it does not tell us everything. 
And there's a couple of errors uh, in our world today when it comes to learning from creation about God and truth. On one side, we've got uh, a movement like astrology or the new age or even the occult, and they try to learn too much from creation. Right, you can go on uh, TikTok or you can go on YouTube and find this uh, kind of resurgence and movement of people interested in these different topics to try to understand uh, life and God through looking at the cosmos, right? Looking to stars to tell the destiny or the future or who to marry or how to find happiness. And this is simply just asking too much of creation. Creation tells us something about God and truth, but it does not tell us everything. It doesn't give us anything as specific as these people might wish for creation to say. On the other hand, uh, some people learn far too little about God and truth from creation. And I think scientism would fall into this category. And I'm not talking about science, right? All truth, every truth is God's truth, whether it comes from the study of the word or whether it comes from the study of the world. If it's true, it is God's. He's the creator of everything. In fact, modern science was birthed out of the biblical worldview. I'm talking uh, about scientism, which is the branch of hyperscience that has an anti-supernatural presupposition, but still calls itself science, right? Scientism writes off any chance of supernatural reality as an unproven presupposition. And in doing this, scientism actually breaks the rules and the heart of science to follow where the evidence leads, Right, scientism's claim is that creation tells us far too little. Actually, it tells us nothing about the God who created it. We're all here by one big happy accident, and the only meaning in life is that which we assign to it. Scientism claims that faith and science are incompatible. But that is not the case. That is not the case. Faith and science are not incompatible. In fact, faith and science are perfectly and utterly compatible in ways that we could never imagine because our perspective is wrong. The God of the world is also the God of the word. Um, And this doesn't mean that it's easy. There's apparent contradictions between our understanding of the world and our understanding of the word that we have to work out and work hard to understand and nuance. But throughout history, we have seen that those apparent contradictions are just that, apparent. And as we understand the word more fully and as we understand the world more fully, we see that God is uh, the God of both. Um, but I am no scientist, all right? You don't need to take my word for it. Uh, there's a, a man named Francis Collins, a UVA grad, by the way. Uh, he was the second director of the Human Genome Project, as well as the 16th director of the National Institutes of Health. And he said this in an op-ed about his faith as a leading scientist, and it'll be on the screen. This is what he said. Can you both pursue an understanding of how life works using the tools of genetics and molecular biology and, and at the same time, worship a creator God. Aren't evolution and faith in God incompatible? Can a scientist believe in miracles like the resurrection? Actually, I find no conflict here, and neither apparently do the 40% of working scientists who claim to be believers. I have found there is a wonderful harmony in the complementary truths of science and faith. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. God can be found in the cathedral or in the laboratory. By investigating God's majestic and awesome creation, science can actually be a means of worship. We know God through his world. It paints a picture for us of his glory. It doesn't tell us everything, but it does tell us something. And here is why I share all of this with you. Here's uh, what I'm driving at. Uh, I wanna give you some confidence that you are not alone in trusting God's word. All right, you are not alone in trusting God's word. You're not crazy for trusting the Bible. No matter what your professor at UVA says or your friend at work says or the History Channel seems to think, 
Christians actually have the best answer for how everything got here. In our culture, atheism and scientism seem to have the loudest voice sometimes, but I am here to tell you they are ignoring obvious answers that science leaves the door open to and cannot answer. People far smarter than us have studied God's world and have studied God's word and have worked through different uh, challenging uh, issues and have come through the other side trusting in the word and trusting in God. Um, And so we should look hard and long at those things to know God more and to seek him. But you can have confidence that even if you don't have the answers, even if the objections seem strong, I can guarantee you that somebody has answered the question that you were thinking about and we would love to uh, connect with you about it. That being said, a lot of these questions are difficult, are challenging, and may not understand uh, how it all works together for another 100,000 or maybe not until we're with Jesus uh, uh, at the end of days. But God is not afraid of your questions, right? The Bible is not afraid of your questions. The church, we are not afraid of your questions. All truth is God's truth. We're confident of that. We might not be able to explain everything all the time, but as we question God as a child rather than a skeptic, we seek to understand more about the world as we operate by faith. You are not alone in trusting God's word, and you can stand on it even if there are objections that are thrown at you. We know God through his world. He gives us a broad picture of his glory and his power. But like I mentioned, it does not get specific uh, beyond that. So where do we go? God's world declares God's glory generally in broad strokes, but God's word teaches us everything we need to know about God specifically. And that's where we go next. We know God through his word. We know God through his word. Pick up with me in verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So in these verses, we see an incredibly high view of God's word. Right, they think very highly of God's word. We'll walk through exactly what that, how, it, how that comes out. Right, in these verses, it's a song of almost praise toward the Bible. You see the repetition of the sentence structure there in three parts. First, you've got a synonym for the Bible. You've got law and testimony and precepts and commandments and rules. They're all pretty straightforward except for one, uh, the fear of the Lord. You're like, how is that a synonym for the Bible? Um, it threw me for a loop as well. Uh, but I think what's going on there is... Um, When we read the scriptures, it should so tightly lead to uh, fear and reverence and awe of God that the psalmist ties it in as a synonym for God's word here. So we've got the Bible. It's talking about the Bible in those first section of each line. Um, The second part of each line is a characteristic of the Bible. You see those perfect. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. And then the third part of each line is a statement of the impact of God's word in, the, in our hearts, right? It revives us. It makes us wide. It rejoices our hearts. So believing in uh, the Bible as God's word is absolutely fundamental and foundational in the life of a Christian. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Bible is breathed out by God. The Bible is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God. The doctrine of inspiration is an important one to understand about the scriptures. And the doctrine of inspiration is that God guided human authors to write the Bible without error. All right, God guided human authors to write the Bible without error. What this means is that the scriptures teach and we believe that the Bible is God's word. When the Bible speaks, God is speaking. 
All right, when the Bible speaks, God is speaking. And this is not just a blind intellectual leap that Christians take. It is a belief of faith, but there are also many reasons we believe this as Christians. First, the Bible says this about itself. Right, it would be problematic if the Bible didn't say this or said the opposite of this. But 2 Timothy 3.16 and similar verses say that the Bible is God's word. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. It is inspired by God. Second, the Bible has stood the test of time and intense scrutiny and is still accepted widely in all different cultures and all around the world. And then third, through 66 books and thousands of years, there are no clear contradictions that have ever uh, stuck uh, and have not been uh, explained uh, to be harmonious. Um, So there's a number of reasons we believe this. But another reason um, that we believe in the doctrine of inspiration, that the Bible is from God and the Bible is God's word, is that Jesus believed this. All right, Jesus believed that this is true. I, had a fr- I have a friend in ministry named Joey uh, Schwartz, and he, he shared with this with me a number of years ago, and I wanna, I wanna show you. So Jesus affirmed that the Bible is God's word. There's two things you need to see to understand this. First, uh, Jesus assumed the inspiration of the Old Testament. All right, Jesus assumed the inspiration of the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament was God's word. We see that because Jesus assumed it throughout the Gospels. Um, in, the old, in the New Testament, in those Gospels there, during Jesus' life, his Bible was the Old Testament. Right? The New Testament was not written until after he left, and Jesus used it, assumed it, and, and treated it as God's word a number of different ways. Jesus explicitly said that the Bible, the Old Testament that he had, would last forever, forever in Matthew 5, 17, and 18. When Jesus faced temptation, if you remember that story, he remembered the Old Testament, he quoted it, and he stood on it as truth. And then in his arguments with the Pharisees, time and again, he cited the Bible as the final source of authority. An example of this is in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. Jesus answered them, and he said, you are wrong, because why? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Pharisees would regularly come at Jesus asking questions, making objections, and Jesus again and again response was, well, what does the Bible say? It is the word of God. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. It is true, so let's go back to that, talk about it, and that's where our answer is. Jesus assumed the inspiration of the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament, though. What about the New Testament? All right, in the New Testament, um, Jesus authorized the inspiration of the New Testament. Jesus authorized the inspiration of the New Testament. He assumed the old one, it was there, but then he authorized the inspiration of the New Testament. He had 12 men who he appointed as his his apostles, his representatives, after he left to pass on the message of the teaching of the Bible. He gave them the keys to the church. He appointed them as the early leaders of the church. And in John 14, 26, he promised them that they would be able to teach faithfully his teachings. This is what he said. He said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus assumed the inspiration of the Old Testament by the way he did ministry and talked about it, and then he preemptively authorized the writing of the New Testament by the apostles to pass on the message of what he taught, what he did, and what he accomplished for us. So we believe the Bible is the word of God because Jesus believed the Bible was God's very word. But there's one more reason And I want to share with you, this one's been so helpful for me to believe that the Bible is the word of God. The one more reason that we can have as high of a view of scripture ourselves as Psalm 19 seems to have, uh, and it's this. We know the Bible is God's word because it is the only explanation for for such a powerful, beautiful, prophetic, and enduring book. All right, we can believe that the Bible is God's word because there are divine fingerprints all over it. When you read the Bible, you get to a place where you have to make a choice between two options. 
all right? One option is to figure out how such a book could be written without God, and that leads to far-fetched schemes of corruption and backdating of prophecies and writing and twisting and all different kinds of things uh, that are are just far-fetched and out there. Or we can believe that there is one divine author who guided the whole process of the scriptures, and the Bible is the word of God. The Bible has dozens of human authors over thousands of years with a handful of different languages, and there is one clear story, one clear through line from Genesis to Revelation, and this is what it is. First, a holy, a holy and loving God created everything that we see, created all of creation that displays his glory, and the pinnacle and crown of God's creation was humanity, Adam and Eve. In the garden, Adam and Eve, humanity and God existed in a perfect shalom, flourishing relationship with one another between man and God and, in, and between man and creation, flourishing. But Adam and Eve, humanity, we, rather than listening and obeying to God who loved us and created us, decided to rebel against him, not trusting him, but rather going our own way to try to seize and to take into our own hands rather than to trust God. The consequences of this decision were devastating. Sin is what the Bible calls it, this heart of rebellion, entered like a virus into the human race, right? Genesis chapter three is this fall and the virus entering into the human race and the propagation of humans all over the world, everyone has been infected by the disease of sin. And that is where we see, uh, we see as a result of that, all of the brokenness, all of the distress, all of the pain that the world has ever known. Rather than loving and trusting God, we go our own way and the consequences are painful. God is holy and God is loving. He's holy, so he could not just wink at our sin, overlook it and invite us back in. But God is also loving. So in his love, he did not desire to leave us in the brokenness that we brought on ourselves, but he had a plan from the beginning of time to bring us back. How he did that was he sent Jesus uh, to come and live the perfect life that we could not live, and then go to die on the cross in our place, the death that we deserve to die because of our rebellion, so that anyone who trusted and believed in him, his death, burial, and resurrection could be forgiven their sin, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and a new heart, and live forever with God in joy and flourishing that we were created for. Okay, over thousands of years, dozens of authors, multiple languages, every book in the Bible perfectly fits in this arc and grand narrative of what God has done in the world. This is a divine book with his fingerprints all over it. It is one unified story and the hero is Jesus. Uh, Just consider this as another example of the divine fingerprints uh, that are all over the Bible. Um, There are about 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, about the Christ who is gonna come and save the world. All right, so in the Old Testament, there's all of these uh, prophecies that are laid out. Um, It it makes sense that if you were gonna have a divine book, you'd need some special flexes like that, right? Because if you just hand me a book and say this is from God, and I can't see some crazy stuff going on in it, I might be like, did you not just write that book? But, But the prophecies are there. They're pointing to the Messiah to create an expectation of what he would look like, but then also to, to authenticate the book itself as uh, divine, as a message from God. We need some, some help with this, right? We don't want to be 
like fools and anybody says, here's a book from God, just believe it. That's not what's going on. There's 400 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, all of them fulfilled specifically in Jesus Christ. And one professor um, wanted to uh, go through a little study and determine what just like the statistical probability of Jesus accidentally fulfilling these prophecies would be. He's like, what if, what if we just like kind of randomly accidentally fulfilled these prophecies? It wasn't from God and it's just like a lot of people born in the world, so somebody happened to fulfill the prophecies. That's what he's, he's studying. So he looked um, at some of these prophecies. In fact, rather than looking at 400 of them, because it was gonna be a lot of work, I guess, maybe he just didn't wanna go through all that. He's like, I'm only gonna look at eight. I'm just gonna look at eight of these prophecies uh, to understand uh, how difficult it would be for one person by chance to fulfill these prophecies. And the odds that he found of one person by chance fulfilling eight, just eight of the 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah were uh, one in 10 to the 17th power. So one out of whatever number, 10 with 17 zeros after it is, or one with 17 zeros. You math people have to tell me. I'm not sure which it is. So just to give you an idea of the odds, this is what you'd have to do to get similar odds. All right, you got the state of Texas. All right, imagine the state of Texas. All right, now what we're gonna do is we're gonna get uh, silver dollars um, and we're gonna cover the state of Texas in a pile two feet deep. All right, that's what we're gonna do. And then we're gonna take one of those coins, we're gonna paint it red, uh, then we're gonna take a friend here, maybe we'll take somebody and put him over in Oklahoma City, put a blindfold on him, strap him to a catapult, launch him back, launch him into Texas. We say, hey, do whatever you want, walk around, leave the blindfold on, you can walk as far as you want, uh, pick one coin. The odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that the Old Testament had about Jesus is the same as that blindfolded person finding the one red coin in the state of Texas. All right, that is statistical uh, view of what it would mean for one person just to accidentally fulfill this. The prophecies point to the God who is tying all things together from before to the end. Uh, these prophecies are a fingerprint of God on the scriptures. So whether it's the prophecies found in the Bible or the incredible message of the unified story across cultures, we see divine fingerprints all over the scriptures. It is a special book. It is God's word. When the Bible speaks, God speaks, and you can trust it. All that I've shared so far um, is meant to give us confidence in this one statement. All right, here's the, the takeaway for you. You can build your life on the Bible. All right, you can build your life on the Bible. There is no better place to build your life than on God's word. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. You can trust that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And in faith, you can build your life on the Bible. But I think as we consider uh, building our life on the Bible, there's a, there's a handful of reasons that it's challenging and uh, difficult. Um, one is, and this is probably what I feel a lot of the time, is that we've got one life, and the Bible calls us to do some really hard stuff. Right, the, we have one life, and the Bible calls, it tells us to give away our money. It tells us to keep our bodies to ourselves and not, uh, have, you know, not uh, chase uh, instant gratification. It tells us to serve others and, and do challenging things and to die to ourselves so that others can live. And we uh, have a hesitation towards building our lives on the Bible because if all in all honesty, we say, we got, we got one life. If I stand on the Bible and build my life on the Bible, I'm gonna waste it by sacrifice and not see the fruit and the joy and the reward of what's coming. But I want you to know that you can build your life on the Bible, that it will not fail you. The God of Abraham is your God and he will come through according to his promises on the last day. In Matthew uh, chapter six, seven, um, Jesus uh, taught a parable about building your life on God's word. Uh, Jesus said there's a, a, a foolish man who uh, goes and looks for a place to build his house and builds the house on the foundation of sand. But when the storm comes 
and the wind blows, the house gets knocked over. There's nothing left, it falls apart, they lose everything. On the other hand, there's a wise man who looks for a foundation for his house and finds the stone, right, the stone. And he builds the house on the solid foundation of the rock. And when the storm comes, when the wind blows, the house is sustained. Jesus says that we should build our lives on his word. Building our lives on the word of God, on the Bible, is like building our house on solid rock. Because life is going to throw storms, and you want to have a foundation that can stand in the midst of it. But also, at the end of life, there's gonna be one big storm. Jesus is gonna return, and judgment is gonna be poured out against sin on the earth. And what Jesus is saying is that as we build our lives on the solid foundation of the message of the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel, on that last day, we will stand strong, firm, and forgiven in the house of the Lord. We can build our house on the word of God. We can build our lives on the word of God. And it's not surprising, given what we know of the Bible from these verses before, this high view of the Bible, that David uh, in verse 10 says this. He says, more to be desired are they, the scriptures, than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. He says, the Bible is not just informational, but the Bible is precious. It is better than gold. It is better than honey. And if a church is gonna flourish, uh, and if a disciple, if you are going to flourish, we have got to know God's word, and we have got to treat God's word as precious. And all of this leads us to one simple but challenging question, at least for me, is do you treat God's word as precious? Or do you treat God's word as precious? Do you read it? Do you meditate on it and memorize it? Do you discuss it with others? Do you learn it? Is your view of the world shaped more by the scriptures or by culture or social media or your experience? Right? Do you value God's word as precious in practice in your life? All right, get up here and I ask that, but at the same time, I, I know it's tough. The Bible is hard. <laughs> You're probably like, Justin, I can't open up the Bible. I don't wanna, like, like, I open it up, it does nothing for me. I'm the same way. If I open up to the middle of Jeremiah, I got like the Master's of Divinity degree, all that stuff. There's some crazy stuff in there. You're like, what does this have to do with anything? I don't know what's going on. I'll just read the verses on the coffee mugs. Those are the important ones that people print. I'll be inspired and I'll know Jesus will go from there. So we wanna help you. God's word is a lot. There's a lot of books. It's written a long time ago. Um, but we can help you learn how to understand God's word, how to read it, how to study it, how to pull truths out of it to apply it to your life and to, to your life and to build a foundation on it. Do something like Rooted. Talk with your missional community. Dive deep into a Bible study with your uh, DNA group. But we wanna help you build your life on God's word, not just its information, but also we want you to see it as precious, as a revelation of God's salvation and goodness for you and to be able to get into it yourself. All right, so we know God through his world. We know God even more through his word. And what is true all throughout the Bible is also true here in this passage. When we receive revelation from God, it demands a personal response. All right, when we receive a revelation from God, when something unknown becomes known from God revealing it to us, it demands a personal response. And David's gonna do that as he looks at his heart. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
when we see the character of God in, in the world and in the word, uh, it is not just information, and it's also not just immediately good news. Uh, it gets to good news, but we gotta take a little step first. When we see God's character, it actually is not just information, it, it brings some confrontation. Right? Because when we see the holiness and the perfection of God, it contrasts with our brokenness and our imperfection. And the first thing that probably creeps up in our spirit as we see God's incredible glory and power is, but I'm not. Or we see uh, the pure and right and clean and sure nature of his word and therefore his character. We say, but I'm not. Right? The revelation of God does not just bring information about him, but it does bring confrontation to us. It points to us that we're not what we should be, that we choose to go our own way, that we hurt other people, that we, we use others for ourselves, that we don't follow God like we should. David acknowledges his sin here, and he asks for God's forgiveness and even protection from himself. He says, God, show me where I'm operating in sin, and I don't even know it, those hidden faults. He says, God, help me not to follow the sinfulness of my heart to open rebellion against your ways. Protect me from presumptuous sins. When we see God's glory, when we see God's grace, when we see his revelation toward us, his goodness to show us himself, we should turn and ask God to help us turn from sin so that we can know him more. David in this Psalm knows that the greatest obstacle to intimacy with God, flourishing in life is himself. And that leads us to this question. What sin is keeping you from enjoying intimacy with God this morning? What sin in your life is keeping you from enjoying intimacy with God this morning? Maybe it's something that through the sermon it was unknown before and the Spirit's kind of pressing on your heart to turn from that. Praise God. As we turn from sin, we get to enjoy deeper and more meaning fellowship with Jesus. Praise God. But maybe there's an area of that presumptuous sin in your life, an area that you've known for a long time that it is not okay, it's not honoring God, but you said, God, you cannot go there. I will not give that up and you can't touch it. Maybe you've had an area of presumptuous sin. And let me tell you, there's, there's so many reasons not to do that. Like God's, God's judgment is coming, it's gonna bring destruction on your life. But here, I think the end of this Psalm is pointing at you're missing out on the good fellowship with God. As you're holding your fists up to him saying, God, you can't have that you're missing out on enjoying fellowship with the creator who loves you, wants you to know him, and wants to, you to know that he knows you. Turn from your sin, know him more deeply, enjoy fellowship with God. And this is tough as we look inside and look at our sin because oftentimes the deeper we go, the nastier it seems to get, right? We can deal with the outside sins, the sins of action that we do. We kind of wrestle those down sometimes by our own strength, but they're kind of the first to go. But as we go deeper into our heart and we get to some of those corrupt motivations, we look at God's character in the world and in the word, and then we see what our own heart is doing down there. It's, we don't like going there. We don't like seeing what is on the inside. And that's why David at the end of this Psalm calls to mind his redeemer, right? His rock and his redeemer. To redeem something is to purchase it back. To purchase it back. Our sin incurred a debt before God and Jesus on the cross purchased us back. There's no amount of heart work. There's no amount of effort that can earn salvation to God. We need total salvation from somebody else to come and pay our debt. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us at the cross. The God who created that son and created the world and is just fully powerful and glorious. And also the God who revealed himself in every way that we would need to know him in the scriptures just really graciously said, here's who I am. 
is also the God who hung on the cross for you. He's the God who hung on the cross for you. As we trust in him, we're saved from sin into a joyful relationship with God who's revealed himself to us. Again, my prayer is that you will know Jesus more, that you'd know him in creation, that you'd build your life on how he's revealed in, your, in his word, that you trust him more this morning. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you have graciously revealed yourself to us. We're lost on our own, uh, but you've revealed yourself to us in your word. And you've opened the eyes of our hearts to understand that, to submit to it, to accept it, and to walk with you. I pray these last verses would be true of us, that uh, our prayer would be the Psalms prayer. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Today we get